by showcasing their professions, passions, and perspectives. I'm your host, Manthir Singh, a.k.a. The Net Nehung. Wahegru Ji Ka Khalsa, Wahegru Ji Ki Fateh, Dr. Jaspal Singh. Welcome to the Net Nehung's Arena. Thank you for reaching out. Thank you for having me. Yeah. No, I've, I've actually been following you quite a bit on Facebook. I, I waste a lot of time on Facebook. Of course, we all do. Yeah. But um, over the years, I've seen you talking about various types of pain treatments, and I find it fascinating. But I don't know anything about this stuff. And I, I enjoy lifting weights. And if I have years of this abuse of heavy weights on the joints, and it's catching up to me now. So I really particularly started to pay attention when you did it. And I know you were, you were almost a bodybuilder yourself. You got <laughs> pretty big for a while, got pretty strong for a while. And uh, I don't know how much of that you maintained over the years, yeah. but I remember watching you go from like this skinny little kid to all of a sudden this buff dude. But uh, why don't you give yourself a little introduction, explain your background, what your specialty is, and then we can jump into it after that. Sure. No, uh, first, you know, I appreciate you reaching out to me and, you know, I met you in, I don't know when, 1992, maybe at one of the sick camps who were my counselor and certainly a role model when I was 10, 12 years old. And just no, like you, you said, were the role model actually, cause you were doing Kirtan <laughs> then you and Ravi with his camouflage pants, you guys used to do Kirtan and you would do a nun side, and it was like this high energy, a nun side, and we were all like blown away by you guys. We like to, we like to pump it up a little bit. Yeah. I think you're right. That was probably like 92 or something. Uh, yeah. So it's a camp. That's kind of where we met. And I remember, you know, you were muscular bodybuilder and I think I, try to mimic some of those qualities in myself, you know, and I think you talked about it when I was growing up about having some self-confidence and that was one of the ways that I approached it even at school and amongst my friends. So, uh, no one's ever called me buff before. So I'm going to make sure I tell my wife that that will uh, <laughs> make her very happy. Uh, yeah, I go back and forth. You know, I used to work out more in terms of weights. Now it's more calisthenics and body yeah. weight stuff, but and you have to evolve, right? Like, I mean, our bodies can't maintain that kind of stuff. It, it's kind of fun when you're younger, you know, you get the look or whatever, but at some point you got to look at your health. Absolutely. Yeah. And our joints and tendons can't accommodate what they used to accommodate. Right. Uh, so a little bit about me. So I, my name is just Paul Ricky Singh. I'm here in New York city in Manhattan. Uh, I work at Walquinnah medicine at New York Presbyterian hospital. So my background, I did my medical training and undergrad at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. And then I did my residency in physical medicine rehabilitation or physiatry, followed by a sports fellowship and a pain fellowship. And since then, in 2011, I came here to New York and have been in practice uh, at the university since then. You know, the things that I like to practice mostly and the things I focus on clinically are things that you mentioned, you know, getting people and patients back to their active lifestyle right. of working out or running or exercising. A lot of patients come to me with different types of pain, whether it's back pain or joint conditions, arthritis, muscle, tennis, elbow, shoulder injuries. So we try our best to use techniques to get them back to uh, being active again. Yeah, so is, it, is it mostly like um, athletes or performance driven or is it just general population? People are just dealing with the normal back, which when we say normal back pain, it's actually a much bigger problem than I realized even. 
Sure. Yeah. We, we see a mix and we see some athletes who are high level athletes, but 85, 90% of the patients are normal lay folk like me and you yeah. just weekend warrior type of people who get injured on the weekend or even pick up their grandkids and hurt their back. Right. So these are the patients that we see. And I don't want to minimize their desire to go back to a healthy lifestyle. In addition to the athletes, you know, they want to right, be right. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't mean to imply that. I was just, yeah, I was yeah. just wondering where are you, most of your work, where's it getting done? Yeah. Most of it's just, you know, regular patients who have back issues and, you know, especially with the last six months of COVID, I mean, these yeah. back and neck issues have really been highlighted for a couple of reasons. One, the gyms have been closed, especially here in New York. So you're not exercising the way you used to. Yes. People are stuck on zoom calls like, like we're doing. So posture and mechanics are adversely affected and it's tough for patients and people to get motivated to work out in their houses. You know, we've done a couple of podcasts on how do you exercise and how do you stay healthy at home? That's, yeah. that's not a tool that we usually have because we can outsource that. But now we're forced to stay in our homes and be active. You know, it's funny because in February, beginning of February, it might have been end of January, beginning of February, I bought this rogue power rack and I bought 800 pounds of weights and new barbells and a big bench and got this whole rack set up. And I was so excited. I was like, oh man, I'm going to be working out at home, doing all this stuff. And then, then the COVID stuff hit after that. And I was like, thank God. I did that because the gym closed, everything was shut down, couldn't do that. And how much did I actually work out? Right. I mean, hardly any. I, I right. sit at my computer. I was sitting at my computer applying for these uh, uh, PPP loans. I right. was uh, sitting at my computer trying to work on my business, try to get prepared for when we get out of this. Because we were in real estate, we were completely shut down. Sure. We couldn't show a house. We couldn't do a lot of things. So... It's a lot of spent time on my computer. And then I thought, okay, let me at least get out and go look at drive-by properties. So I'm sitting in my truck. Right, right. And I'm all of a sudden, I was way more sedentary than I was post-COVID. And I thought, sure. hey, I'm at home. I'm going to be working out all the time. I'm going right. to get in great shape. And it didn't happen. Right. And a lot of it, when you mentioned about posture and stuff, I can feel it in my chair. I've been wanting to get a new chair for a while now because I can feel it. If, if I don't pay attention and sit a certain way, my chair kind of makes me sit in a way that curves my back and I can feel the pain after, you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes of just sitting here. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we see patients all the time looking for the best new ergonomic chair or even these chest support straps that figure eight you and yeah, push yeah, your shoulders back. Too. Do those help? You know, they're good for an acute situation. You know, what happens yeah. is when we're sitting at our computers, our chest goes forward and our shoulders get rounded. Yeah. So our pecs get really tight. So these straps kind of force you back into extension and it's great passively, but then we want you to activate the back muscles like the rhomboids and the muscles in between your shoulder blades and these passive uh, straps don't allow you to do that. So I don't like them long-term use, but for the short-term acute side, it's not a terrible uh, thing right. to buy. So getting into maybe long-term solutions. So what do you deal with? What do you recommend? What do you see? You know, What's I cutting edge stuff. Yeah, there's, there's so much innovation in, in our space of spine and pain medicine. You know, back in the day, it's, and not back in the day, even currently, we use cortisone, right? Steroid injections. Yeah, steroid. You go to the doctor and they give you a steroid shot in the knee or the shoulder. And it helps. It works because what happens with degeneration is the tendons and the muscles and joints get filled with these chemical inflammatory mediators. And steroid goes in there, shuts it all down. Okay, so the steroid is actually anti-inflammatory. It's reducing the inflammation. Right, right. And, but the problem with steroid is it doesn't just reduce the inflammation in the joint. 
it actually shut down, shuts down a lot of your body's processes. So mm-hmm. it can lead to hair loss. It can lead to weight gain and worsening of your diabetes. I so, and bone health, you know, it decreases your bones. So we don't like steroids because it has so many adverse effects, but for pain, it helps. The problem with cortisone is we are limited to how much we can give a patient in a given year for those very reasons. Oh, you know, we see. Three to four per year. And the fact that there's a limit on the number of treatments I can give a patient tells you that probably this treatment isn't the best thing for you. There must be something better out there. Right, right. And that kind of leads us to, you know, what we're going to talk about is, is stem cells and regenerative yeah. medicine, which is a very exciting topic. Yeah. And, you know, it's, but it's not the fountain of youth. You know, patients want to come in and say, you know, I'm 50, make me feel 20. Right. Put stem cells all over my body. And yeah, just them. fill up my tub and I'll just sit in it every day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that would be great. And maybe in 20, 30 years, this conversation that you and I would have might be, hopefully be different and we'll oh. develop technologies to allow us to do that. But right now, Stem cell and regenerative medicine is targeted interventions. And even the term regenerative medicine, I'm not sure is the best term. Maybe it should be right. restorative medicine. Because okay. in the lab, we can grow cartilage. We can grow different parts of a joint because we can affect the environment completely. Using the, the body, stem cells, you're saying? Using stem cells. Yeah. In the body, when we inject stem cells, whether it comes from you or me, you know, we have circulating stem cells in the body. We can't really regrow tissue. What we can do is provide stability and strength to some of the surrounding structures of the joint or of the spine to let that joint recover and heal and maybe grow and, and, and improve its functionality. But we still have a lot of work to do in terms of research before clinical applications of stem cells. But it's a treatment that's very exciting. Yeah, there was, a couple of years ago, there was all this controversy about stem cells too, where they come from. They were coming from... Uh, fetuses and, and right. things like that. And there's been some advancements in that too. So there's basically two big categories of stem cells of where you can get them. Number one is your own. It's called autologous. Okay. So we all have stem cells circulating in our body, right? You cut yourself, you're going to scab and your skin's going to slowly repair. And okay. babies, if you've seen a baby and you have kids too, when they cut themselves, they heal very quickly. Yeah. Right. When you and I get a cut, it takes a couple more days, maybe even a week to fully heal. And the reason for that is the stem cells that we have are now aged and our mechanisms to repair are not as efficient. Interesting. So we have stem cells circulating in our body. Most of them, they live everywhere. They live in all tissues and all blood vessels, but where they're concentrated the most are in our bone marrow and in our adipose, our fat. Okay. So when we talk about doing stem cell patients on, on patients, we harvest them from those two sites, either the adipose, doing a little liposuction, lipoaspiration, or we drill yeah. into the bone and take the stem cells out of there. So I think I have a lot of stem cells, like mostly <laughs> just right in the gut. <laughs> I think we all do. I think COVID-19 COVID means we gain 19 pounds. Is that <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So the, uh, the other thing that you talked about is allogeneic stem cells, which are from something else, some other donor. So the FDA has largely said no to embryonic stem cells. Right, you know, okay. They're saying, unless you're doing a clinical trial, that's backed by science at a big health institution, you're not going to use embryonic stem cells. But the ones that we do use that are allogeneic are placenta-derived. And the difference there is these cells, these growth factors, come at the time when a mother is uh, having a cesarean section. So she'll donate the placenta to these companies. These companies come in and take all the growth factors and, and make them immunoprivileged so there's no chance of rejection when they give them to one of our patients. Okay. But these cells, these growth factors we do use. And we, we have a big clinical trial here at Cornell on knee arthritis. But you have to be careful because 
while it's FDA approved for something, it's often FDA off-label for something else like a knee or a spine condition, but very safe. We found it to be effective um, in many, many different conditions, which we are slowly publishing with time. So how, how, did, how did the cell, the stem cells know not to like make cancer worse or something? Yeah, that's, that was always one of the big concerns when people started to do these procedures. And, and the reason is we don't have the capability of manipulating the cells that much in vivo in the body. And the reality is these stem cells, even if I take it from you, I take it from your adipose and I put it in your knee, these stem cells don't actually convert into anything. That's the theory that we all used to have. Oh, they're going to turn into cartilage. Oh, That's okay. not actually what happens. What happens is these cells tell the local environment, let's call it, let's talk about your knee arthritis for a second. They tell the knee cells, do your job better, produce more mm. proteins, produce more cartilage. And the stem cells that I actually have transplanted into your joint disappear within a week or so. They're gone. Oh, wow. So they okay. don't have the opportunity to really form, go into cancer or form things that you don't want them to do. They just signal other cells to come and do, do the job better. So they're kind of like little messengers, basically, or, or little um, task, like the task master or something. Yeah, come that's in, They exactly. crack the whip on everybody and make them do their job better. Exactly right. We actually, you know, the, the, the an, uh, acronym MSC is mesenchymal stem cell. Some people call them medicinal signaling cells because oh. that's exactly what they're doing. They're just signaling your body cells to come and grow tissue and promote restoration. Yeah, no, it's really fascinating. I mean, look, I don't know anything about anything, right? I'm just reading stuff on the internet and watching YouTube videos and and you see like Mel Gibson talks about how his father got stem cells. They went to Israel and they got stem cells in his shoulder. He's 90 years old and now he has full motion in his shoulders. You know, you see these little anecdotal stories and and you're like, oh man, you know, yeah, because my chest, my, my shoulder hurts, my chest hurts. I can't lift like I used to. Yeah, you know, shoot me up a couple of stem cells sure. and, you know, what's, what, what could be the worst that could happen? You know, the, the challenge with that situation that you mentioned, you know, Kobe Bryant is often cited as someone who used to get stem cells and growth factors back in Germany, yeah. Paul Gasol, a lot of these NBA basketball players, Tiger Woods. The problem with that is then the layperson who's kind of desperate for treatments anyway, they have failed surgery, they have failed cortisone injections and physical therapy. Yeah. And all of a sudden you hear these stories about stem cells. So they'll fly to random places across the world because the FDA is so regulates our system so much here in the hopes of some type of miraculous recovery. And in reality, that doesn't often happen. There are cases where patients do well, but the science isn't really borne out in that type of recovery after a stem so, cell. So people could, it could help them. It could, it may have been the stem cells or Maybe for that particular person and their particular body, it worked well, but that doesn't mean you're going to be able to consistently get those results with everybody with the same symptoms. Absolutely. You, you nailed it. And one of the big challenges in, in regenerative medicine in general is it's very difficult for us to predict who's going to respond and who's not going to respond. We don't have the science down to that granular level, level yet. So we offer it to patients with mild, immediate, severe arthritis. Usually we see that patients with the severe group don't do well in general. Okay. We still don't know how to identify who's going to respond and who isn't. So there's no link maybe even between like their health, somebody who's healthier, more fit, eats a better diet, exercises regularly already. They're more likely to benefit or, but, or is there no link at all? I would say anecdotally, I have seen that, you know, we just published a study on hip arthritis with stem okay. cells and we saw those with the less BMI tended to do better. Those with less degradation of their joints tended to tended to do better. But 
Yeah, that'd be a great scientific question. The next go around of collecting data would be to look at some of these modifiable risk factors on exercise, sleep, stress, meditation, and see if those things positively impact your recovery. That's a great question. Yeah. And, uh, you know, really bringing it back to the sick community, um, we have a lot of health issues in general that we don't talk about. Right. And there's some kind of like shame thing in our community when sure. it comes to people's health. It's like, you don't want to, you don't want to be perceived as irresponsible with your health or something. Right. Right. But way we sit in Gurdwaras, you know, and for how long we sit, right. You know, and then the, um, the, we, it's when we sit and eat in the Lunger hall on a hard surface, you know, uh, all kinds of things. And then even the way we do a lot of the sevas in the Gurdwara, yeah. You know, we're, there's a certain amount of abuse happening on our bodies and we're not taking care of it. So do you see a lot of sick patients? Have you seen sick patients and have you noticed a link between people who tend to sit in a Gurdwara seem to have more <laughs> knee and back issues or something? Yeah, no, I, I treat a fair amount of patients from our community. Um, but yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. I remember growing up at sick camps, we could sit there and do Kirtan for hours at a time, do yeah. a ransom by overnight, no issue. Right. Now I go to Gudwara and after like 15 minutes of sitting Jokrimar Indian style, yep. my hips are hurting, my knees, I'm slouching, and I'm forced to kind of sit upright. Yep. Yeah, it's not really ergonomic. I mean, there is a proper way to sit on the ground, which nobody at Gudwara is doing. We're all slouching, okay. we're holding our knees up. Yeah, and that's going to take a toll on our body. I do see a lot more hip and knee issues when it comes to our community in specific, yeah. I think the genetic component for sure, there is probably an obesity component as well. We tend to eat high fatty foods, high sugary foods. Yeah, and we eat them at the Gurdwara. <laughs> because, because it's Gurdwara food, you're allowed to. You can eat Prashad. Prashad is butter, flour, sugar. Yeah. But it's Prashad. So yeah. who's going to say blessed. this is not healthy? <laughs> this is it. If you're sick, you have diabetes, you can have Prashad. There's no problem because it's Prashad. So, no, but what's interesting, you mentioned about the stigmatization of health in our community, not even physical ailments. I mean, mental health is a topic that we rarely talk about. Oh, if you're yeah, that's depressed a or one. stressed or sad, what do we say? Go pray, go Nam Japo, do some Kirtan and you'll be fine. Right. Guru will take care of you. Right. We don't yeah. think of those things as a real disease. I'm guilty of that because that's my upbringing. Yeah, you know, we didn't and, talk about depression. It doesn't necessarily mean that those things wouldn't help, but that's not really understanding what the issue is, what the disease is, or what sure. what's going on, and how to. I mean, you could say that about anything, right? You could say, "Oh no, no Guru Sahib will take care of you. Just do Nam Japo." Okay, so I can eat donuts for dinner, right? You know, because Guru Sahib will take care of everything. You wouldn't do that. So we don't treat mental health the same way we treat our physical health, and we, as a community, we don't give even our physical health enough attention, right? No, it's these are all like great points and I'm going off in tangents now thinking about things that we've talked about at our adult part of Gudwara. Yeah. One of the things that we talked about recently was hukam and what that is. Is it that I'm free of any responsibility of my actions because Waiguru is in charge or is it that within the context of his hukam, I still can make my decisions independently? Yeah. I personally the free think free will versus destiny, right? You know, I, yeah, I think we're in charge of, the decisions we make and we are, we should be held responsible to that to some, to some extent, but nothing happens without his will, which is what I think Hukum is, but that's a whole another. That's a whole another discussion. And, you know, again, a lot of times we can't see um, how 
this this whole thing seems opposing to us. How could it be free will? How could it be destiny? See, it's got to be one or the other. And maybe it doesn't. You know, maybe it doesn't work that way. Yeah. And so, but yeah, that's a whole nother discussion. Yeah, we could talk about that another time. But I think the um, issue of pain and, and joint problems in our community, a lot of people have arthritis. A lot of people have diabetes. A lot of people have um, other heart disease. Um, you know, high blood pressure, things like that. And what you're telling me now is also even the treatments that are available for bad knees and pain and all this kind of stuff, they seem to work better when you're healthier. So even to get the proper medicine, you should think of yourself being in a better physical condition. Absolutely. You know, what's interesting about the U.S. healthcare system is that we are taught in medical school to wait for pathology to occur yeah. and then to jump in and try to re- reverse it and heal it. Very rarely do we spend much time on preventative health and integrative health. You know, I just finished a recording with uh, one of the physicians here who is a specialist in integrative health. And that's what we talked about. We talked what, about what, what, what is integrative health? Preventative health is just like eating healthier and exercising. So you don't get diseases. What is integrative health? So integrative health takes preventative health complementary medicine, alternative therapies, holistic medicine, and conventional um, medical therapies and puts them together. So like maybe you're doing acupuncture and you're doing some other things. Absolutely. So the example that we talked about was someone who came in with migraines, who has a neurologist treating that person with migraines. Yeah. But they come to integrative health and they say, well, let's talk about your stress levels. Let's talk about your diet. Maybe acupuncture could help. Maybe medical massage can help. So taking all these different modalities for the patient's care, which are, yeah. I'm limited. You know, I have a couple tools in my belt. I have meds, I have physical therapy and exercise. I have some injections. When all that fails, my go-to thought is, okay, I have to send you to surgery. But what about going back a little bit and saying, wait, let's talk about healthy eating, healthy, active lifestyle, emotional, and spiritual well-being. And I'm guilty of not talking about any of those things in a one-to-one interaction with my patients, which I... Well, is that how you're trained, right? That's what you were saying. The U.S. health system, it doesn't, it doesn't even have that kind of approach on the radar. They've been trained to uh, see what the symptoms are, diagnose the symptoms, and then treat the symptoms. Right, right. Rarely preventative health and integrating those preventative treatments with conventional medicine is where we need to head. Uh, and a lot of things within our culture, within Sikhi, is that, right? It's live healthy, put good things into your body, put good things into your mind, try not to pollute this one outside that we've been given. And yeah, the, as I speak to you about this, I'm kind of thinking about how I'm going to interact with my next patient encounter. Maybe talk a little bit more about these things rather than just the ailment that they came in with. Yeah. And you know, there's another, I, you could call it a soft danger. I don't know if it's a very serious danger. Maybe it is more serious, but like if all you do is treat symptoms and give people medicines, then those people that are tempted by alternative solutions, you know, Ayurvedic stuff or homeopathy, homeopathy, things like that, they could actually make things worse being attracted to something without any real guidance or any understanding. Whereas the way you're talking about it is this, uh, what was integrative, right? You get you're getting a doctor who understands the actual pathology and understands how the medicine is working and can supplement or complement that treatment with the things that they know to have results. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you just listened to my podcast or not, but you're saying exactly what we talked about a second ago, which was 
the old terminology used to be alternative medicine. Alternative right. meaning here's a conventional path, allopathic. I don't like anything I'm hearing. I'm going to go do something that's, that has no science backing it. Right, right. Versus complementary and integrative is, is you have to do both. And I think there's a role for Eastern and Western medicine to come together and make meaningful impacts on people's quality of life. And it seems like pain seems to be one of the uh, fields where doctors are opening up to that more than anything else. I'm not really hearing that when it comes to um, other other. Um, practices of medicine, but it seems like a lot of pain doctors are looking at alternatives, CBD, acupuncture, um, you know, things like that. And they're integrating it. They seem to be, maybe it's because you guys are on the front lines dealing with it. I don't, I don't know. I think pain is ripe for this type of integration. A lot of it's probably from governmental pressures and the opioid crisis that we just experienced and how our outcomes in spine and back pain aren't really great anyway, despite how much we do to patients how much we spend on healthcare treating this condition where our outcomes aren't really superb or any better than any other country. So I think having different tools to help these patients, including psychology and mental health meditation. Yeah. We're, we're finding value there where, where we still don't have great integration is probably in heart disease. You know, if you have a high blood pressure, cardiologist sees you, maybe gives you antihypertensives. But then what about talking to the nutritionist down the hall and then a active lifestyle coach? You know, I think we're still missing those elements. Right. No, that's a great point. Right. I think I kind of took you off topic with the stem cells. But um, one thing I thought about, and I, I mentioned this to you before we started recording or in an email, I think, about uh, PRP treatments, which is a platelet rich plasma. And that, that's something totally different than stem cells but it seems to have kind of lost a lot, some of its luster. It was like the big hot thing a couple of years ago. And then what happened? Stem cells stepped in or did we just not get the results we were expecting? What happened? Yeah. Yeah. So PRP is platelet rich plasma. So like I mentioned earlier, we have circulating growth factors and circulating stem cells in our body that help us repair. You know, anything we do, we break a bone, gradually our bone will repair and make a, uh, make more bone formation around that fracture site. Right. But PRP really gained attraction probably in the late 90s with this orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Alan Mishra out of Stanford. Okay. And he was using it to treat tendon issues <clears throat> like tennis elbow, rotator cuff, plantar fasciitis on the bottom of the foot. And the results were good. I mean, there were some studies that showed it didn't work, but obviously every study has some limitations in methodology. Sure. But we still use PRP as our preliminary regenerative medicine technique. The reason is it's so, so what easy. What is it exactly though? What, what, I know you defined the words, but yeah. what does that mean to a lay so person? Inside our body, we have platelets. Platelets form a blood clot. So anytime like in you our start, blood, you're talking about in our blood. Yes. They're in our blood. They're circulating in our, in our veins and our arteries. So anytime I cut myself, what comes there first are platelets. Okay. So they form the clot to stop the bleeding. And what the platelets then do after they've gotten together Inside the platelet, there's these small granules called alpha granules. They release. And the same kind of thing. These granules don't actually do anything except signal your other cells, come here and repair the tissue, make new skin, make more blood vessels I to see. bring in the nutrients. Okay. And it's, it's easy to get because it's circulating in our blood. All I have to do is draw 60 or 30 cc's of your blood, spin it down, get the concentrated growth factors, and put that right back wherever I'm administering the treatment. Okay. So you're actually taking it from that patient. It's not like somebody else's. You're actually taking it from that patient. Right. 
and extracting that through a centrifuge or whatever you guys exactly do, right and so then P- inject it prp back. is always autologous it's always i take it from you i give it right back to you at the point of care which means i do it immediately yeah so i centrifuge okay. it for however long it takes five ten minutes i bring that concentrated growth factor back and i inject it right away and is that does that have different varying degrees of um you know uh, uh, actually working based on people's health because what about people who have diabetes is their yeah. blood not good enough for it yeah, those are, those are great questions that, again, we don't really have all the answers to because not everyone's PRP dose is going to be the same. So when they feel, oh, fail see. the treatment, right? what actually happened? Was it that you didn't have great PRP or was it the treatment was wrong? So we're studying that as well. We're looking at concentration of platelets and white blood cells and growth factor concentrations to see if that makes a meaningful difference. But that is a discussion that I have with patients. If they have some type of underlying blood condition or their platelet count is low, or they're on chronic steroids, I'll probably not use their own cells because the quality is not going to be great. So then we choose some off-the-shelf product like the placenta growth factors that I mentioned. I see. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. But the PRP, I mean, we still offer it. Like I said, it's our first, one of our first lines of treatment in our algorithm. If that works, great. If it doesn't work, then we go one level higher for the stem cell. Okay. Uh, the science there is mixed as well. I would say in many conditions, PRP is equivalent to taking stem cells from your bone marrow. In some conditions, such as spine pain and disc degeneration, yeah. the data suggesting that bone marrow tends to work a little bit better. But the problem is PRP is so easy to harvest, just to stick in the vein, versus stem cells, I have to either drill into the bone or suck it right. out of the fat, which has So there's, some... there's a cost factor here too. Absolutely like right. Stem cell, stem cell treatment is going to be more expensive, it sure. sounds like. Right. Okay. And it's more, a little more invasive, right? There's a little more morbidity risk to the patient of getting right. those cells in the body. Are there ever any issues with like insurances covering it? Or should people be worried about that, that they might have to come out of pocket for any Yeah. Of I mean, most of the time insurance will not cover these treatments because it's all t- out of pocket or cash. Uh, some employer provided benefits through Aetna and Blue Cross sometimes pay for PRP and bone marrow. Okay. But very rarely will insurance pay for it. So that's an important discussion to have with your healthcare provider. You know, here, I like to do a lot of this stuff under a research study or a grant for the reasons you mentioned. When someone comes to me and says, I have hip arthritis, give me a stem cell injection. Right. Five, 10 years ago, not 10, but five years ago, I felt very uncomfortable saying, yeah, you have to pay cash. And they ask, what's your outcomes? And I said, you know, I don't really know. Yeah. I don't have data. So I felt, I felt conflicted. I didn't feel comfortable charging when I didn't really have any data to support that. Right. And you're at an academic hospital. So it, it, it allows you to kind of say, okay, you know what? I'm going to gather the data. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I try not to charge patients when I can avoid it. Um, We do a lot of them in the hospital setting so I can collect data and outcome measures and then, you know, slowly publish that to see what helps and what doesn't help. Yeah. That's really fascinating. Actually. I, I think, um, some of the things I think about is like, if I am perfectly healthy, let's say I don't even have any issues. Is there any benefits to this just to help in recuperation? Like if you're training or you're, you know, like what about athletes, Olympic athletes and stuff? Are these kinds of things, is, 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 is that why people like put their own blood back into their body and, you know, it gives them a performance boost? Like, yeah. can this help people that are actually just healthy and don't have issues? That's a great question. Now, I've always thought of that, how, you know, the, the GI folks, gastroenterology said at age 50, which I think they might actually change to 40, you must come in for your colonoscopy. Yeah. Symptoms or not. 
we don't really do that in physical medicine. We don't really say, come, let's check out your joints. Let's see if they're lubricated enough. Maybe yeah, you need a little tune up. You know, that's not, again, our health system isn't built for that. It's built for get injured, come see right. us. Right. We're not the auto mechanic that rotates the tires and changes the oil periodically, which we should do. I think that'd be, we'd have really meaningful healthcare impacts. Yeah. And again, it gets back to being preventative because now you did your little checkup, you feel good and you got another year on your knees without creating further problems. Right. Yeah. So you I mentioned, think, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, you mentioned before about like stem cells getting them out of the bone marrow and that, and that, made me think, is that what happens when people have to get a bone marrow transplant? Is that why they have to get a bone? Their, their bone marrow is not producing stem cells and they have to get it replaced with someone that is? Right. For the most part, these are mostly bloodborne conditions like leukemia and things right. like that, where their body isn't producing enough of those cells. So when they get a bone marrow transplant, first they have to find the donor, which is many, many different levels that uh, they qualify for. But yes, then they take a donor's stem cells in their bone marrow and put it into another person's bone marrow cavity to try to produce all those different varying different cells that they need in the body. Interesting. But it's not like you could be on because you had leukemia and your bone marrow doesn't work properly. It's not like you could go in for like an injection every other day. Yeah, probably not. That, yeah. The way we describe bone marrow is mostly a regenerative type procedure. I see. The bone marrow transplant community with those bloodborne conditions is, is different entirely. It's totally different, yeah. Um, but the harvest technique is is somewhat similar. Going into the going to the bone and drilling it out. I see. Okay. You know, we we talked a lot about preventative medicine, right? And in conventional medical therapies, allopathic care, we have limited tools and things that I like to write a lot about and talk about are food as medicine. Yeah. Movement is medicine. Well-being is medicine. And these are all things that aren't sexy in healthcare. Right. They're not innovative. They're not devices. So there's no money behind it. It's all right. ownership onto the patient. And that comes back to what we preach in Sikhism is, you know, do well for others, do service for others. And part of that service might just be education. You know, eat properly, yeah. put whole food, plant food in your body, do a little bit of exercise, staying active, and then try to find some meditation, some going inward instead of outward on our devices and social media as much as we all are these days. Yeah. Yeah. No, with nutrition. So I, I've always been um, really interested in nutrition. I read a lot. Actually, um, when I was at Ohio State, um, I was also pre-medical and I decided I wasn't going to do it. I, what happened is I actually went to Ohio State trying to get into physical therapy. They used to have a master's program in mm -hmm. physical therapy back then. Or no, I'm sorry. They had an undergrad program okay. in physical therapy back then. They were one of the only schools in the country that did. The GPA requirements and the competition was so fierce. They only had 40 seats. Oh, wow. So these kids that were in high school since their sophomore year in high school were preparing for the undergrad program in physical sure. therapy. And I remember a friend of mine and I, we were both applying two years in a row. We kept applying, wouldn't get it rejected. Finally, he gave up and got accepted into their med school and went on to become a doctor. Yeah. And then I'm looking at it going, okay, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. Okay. I'll do, I'm, I'm, I'm going to finish a pre-medical degree. I'll go to medical school too. So I, I looked at what credits I had done and I was like, Hey, I could get nutrition, a human nutrition degree. Right. So I studied human nutrition and then that. later on I switched to computer science, <laughs> but, uh, cause I figured med school was not for me. It was a lot of reading <laughs> and I'm not much of a reader. <laughs> I'm more of an audible guy. 
Yeah, no, me too. Nowadays with Audible, I think that's yeah. a great luxury to have. But yeah. nutrition is key. That's you mentioned about recovery and athletes. Yeah. You know, a lot of them focus on amino acids, protein, aspartic acid as ways to recover. And I think in our Western diet, we don't have much good quality protein that's yeah. not accompanied with a lot of bad stuff. Right. Especially if you're vegetarian, it's tough to get the n- amount of protein that you really need. And especially if you're vegan, vegan is a really, if you ask me, vegan is very controversial. I don't think people should jump into veganism lightly. It's, it's one thing that you're going from like an an average American diet and switching to veganism because then, yeah, you're going to get much healthier. Right. But if you already eat healthy, it's, do it with some caution, do it with some care. I think one thing I, when I speak to other vegans, Mm -hmm. it's the dairy Mm-hmm. I mean, dairy, every time I eat dairy, my body tells me, why are you doing this? You should yeah, not be yeah. drinking milk or eating yogurt or ice cream or cheese. Yeah. I mean, but my body's like, what's your problem? Stop eating this stuff. So I do like that aspect of veganism. It's a, uh, but it's not for everyone. Listen, every, we've done so many studies on diets, whether it's yeah. keto or Atkins or yeah, low and there's, and it's conflicting studies too. It's hard, but I, I'll tell you like with the dairy issue that you're having, the lactose intolerance, I totally believe that's a gut biome issue Yeah, and you can retrain your gut bacteria to be lactose tolerant by taking a little bit every day and increasing the amount over time and starting first start with things like yogurt or something that doesn't have the lactose. Right. That's already been, um, you know, the enzymes or whatever have already metabolized the lactose. Right, right. So you can actually revert. I, I think I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. Okay. But I'm just saying, I think you can reverse it by taking those kinds of steps, but that's neither here or there. I don't really care if somebody's vegan or not. I'm just saying like uh, making a drastic dietary change, you probably need to be talking to somebody. They need to be monitoring you. You need to be getting your blood work done and see what's happening. And same with changing your physical activity. Don't go from zero to 60. You know, people listening to this podcast might say, I need to get up and run a marathon. Please don't do that. Just (laughs) go slowly and start with some modest level of activity and then gradually increase your tolerance, just like you mentioned. Yeah. And, you know, um, actually the other day um, I did an episode with uh, another doctor, just Balsing from Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, I don't know if you know him. Um, uh, he's married to Sunit, uh, Dr. Yeah, yeah, yeah. daughter. Yeah. Right, right. He's a uh, he, he's a pul- pulmonologist, but he does right. uh, sleep. And so I, my whole podcast with him was about sleep and sleep apnea. Nice. And that's another area where nobody pays attention to their sleep health. Right. You know, and when we're talking about recovering and and, and recuperation and and being regenerative, um, that's sleep. That's what right. sleep is doing. Hundred percent, and we we have the, we feel those questions all the time on what mattress should I buy and what pillow should right. I buy, and I have my opinions. And I think you know something a little more firm with support tends to be a little bit better. Okay, but the data piece that I'm missing is your quality of sleep. Do you actually get restorative REM sleep at night, or are you tossing and turning all night? Right, it have a meaningful impact on how ready you feel the next day. You know they have all these wearable technologies like the yeah. Aura Ring, the Whoop bracelet, and others. I yeah. tell you, you slept poorly last night. So be prepared to have a not super productive day. I'm I, so tempted to get that aura ring. One reason is because it's a sick co-founder, right? One of ours. Yep. Yeah. So uh, I, I've been tempted to get that, but it tells you a lot of things. I, you know, it tells you your oxygen level. It tells you your heart rate. It tells you yep. what your sleep patterns are. Um, the Fitbit, Fitbit does that too. Some of these right. things will tell you your sleep. So I was doing that for a while. I had my Fit. I only wear a Fitbit for sleep. 
I actually yeah. don't even care how many steps and all that it, stuff. Right. Where for my sleep and I track Absolutely. that. And then I also, and I, and I don't recommend anybody do this kind of stuff without talking to a doctor. Yeah. But I didn't talk to a doctor. I went and bought a CPAP machine off of Craigslist. Okay. Somebody who had an extra brand new one in the box, bought that and it's got an auto setting and it actually keeps your airways open and helps you breathe at night. Right. And I don't have any sleep apnea I, or if I do, it's very, very mild. Okay. But, um, it helps you sleep better. Like I stopped waking up in the middle of the night when I'm wearing the sleep, uh, when I'm wearing the CPAP Yeah, and I'm waking up much more refreshed. So I don't know about, um, I, like I said, I'm not recommending yeah, yeah. people go run out and do this <laughs> kind of stuff. Talk to your doctor, get your right, sleep done, whatever it is. But these are things that we don't pay attention to. We're not paying attention to what we're eating. We're not paying attention to how we sleep. We're not paying attention to how we sit. You know, and these things over the years, they're compounding, they're building on each other. And then before you know, when you're in your forties, like I am in almost 50, I'm 47 now, I feel it. I can feel, I can't, I do a workout. I can't recover. Yeah. It takes me longer to recover. And sure. it's a frustrating feeling, you know, cause you still feel young, you know, but even if your beard's all big and white, you still <laughs> feel young. No, your, your brain thinks you're one age. Your body tells you, no, sir. You're right. Not. Exactly. Yeah. Just goes slowly. Let me ask you a question. You know, yeah. we talked a little bit about posture mechanics and especially how we all sit at Gurdwara on the floor and during longer. Yeah. Now, there are some places in Europe and the UK where they say, you know what, why don't we just all sit on the same level chair at right. Lunger and eat at a table that will hurt our back less. And I've never seen it in the actual Devon Hall with <clears throat> stools or chairs, but I don't know. I don't know how that would work. And if that's yeah, a you know, it's, accommodation. It's, it's tough. I will, I will say this. I tend to be more traditionalist. Yeah. Um, I'm, I, I don't think it's for any other reason other than I like preserving the guru's style. Yeah. Okay. So I think it's fine. Everybody sit on the ground. We just got to figure out how to do it better. But I absolutely think that is the worst way to sit and eat. If you're, when you're leaning over your lunger plate, sitting down on the ground, right. it's horrible for your digestion. Right. If you pick up your plate and you sit up and you eat, that's better because right. you should be upright. Your, you know, your posture should be straight so that when you, um, okay, when it comes to food, it's not what you eat. It's what you digest. Sure. Yeah. It's what you're absorbing. Right. And if you're not digesting food properly, you're, you're putting this material in your body and your body's not processing properly. Now you're going to be sick. You're going to get dehydrated. You're going to have gas. You're going to have these other issues. You might get, you might feel bloated and not eat enough of the nutrients you need. So there's a lot of reasons why I don't like sitting on the ground and eating, but yeah. I think we could remedy those with some discipline. Right. But I'm not against the concept that everybody's sitting together on tables and chairs as some kind of, huge disrespect to the good. I like, I'm not thinking of it that sure, way. Sure. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I think of it more like I like the, like the idea that Akbar came to see Guru Sahib and had to sit on the ground with everybody. Right. You know, he was the emperor yeah. <laughs> and he that's had to come point. sit down the ground. I like that kind of, that's the lowest point you can go. You know, you can sit on the ground and that makes everybody equal at the lowest level. So yeah. I think it's for me, it's more just preserving the tradition. I, I feel like it's, I know it's a little romanticizing the guru's times and stuff, but I think I like that. And it's not necessarily like, Oh my God, the guru would, would, you know, no, right. I, yeah, I agree with you. You guys are blasphemous for, <laughs> I don't think of it that way. 
No, I mean, maintaining tradition is important to our religion. I mean, even outward appearance and stuff like that. I think there's yeah. some value there of unifying the community and bringing people together. I think there's definitely some benefit. But sitting in Gudwara, I mean, you see people tossing and turning and changing positions constantly. Yeah. Yeah, I can't. I mean, I wonder if there's a better strategy than. So I, I have thought about this. <laughs> what's, what's, the latest, what's the latest invention? I, I was thinking if, and I, I, I haven't made this. I know someone's going to listen to this and go make it and make a ton of money. And then I'm going to be sitting here going, what the heck? But <laughs> whatever, it's consider it seva. <laughs> That's right. There you go. So if you could make something that when you're sitting like Tonkri Marke and you have like a cup that straps to your knees and supports your lower back. So if you can imagine, like you hold it on your lower back and then you cross over your body to one knee and cross over your body to your other knee. And that pushes you up. And it pushes you up. Yeah. And it supports you then. And then we get back into the... I, I don't know if you've seen pictures like um, Gursiks and Pratham times, like Bairanthir Singh or, or Kavi Santok Singh and stuff. Sometimes the paintings or the photographs, you'll see that there's a big wooden T, like a big wooden T, and they put it on the ground and they put their elbows on it when they're... Oh, I see. And they're do that's exactly what they're doing. They're holding yeah. their back upright so that they can yeah. sit for six, seven, eight hours. You know, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's why they're doing that. Um, you don't ever see that anymore, but you'll see it in like old pictures from sixties and earlier, but similar to that, I thought if you had to strap like a, you know, imagine like some kind of supportive backrest that wraps around your body to one knee and then to the other. That no, makes sense. You know, wrap it up and take it with you. Yeah, offloading the spine and keeping you more upright. That that makes sense. Yeah. Even even taking some of the stress out of the knees and the hips. I think that's Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because now idea. if you're cupping it like that and holding that, you're also, yeah, you're right. You're pulling off your hips a little bit. Right. So I don't know. There could be something there. You know, we gotta think about these things. And, and that's it's, just something I think we don't do as a bunt. We don't actually try to innovate things for the Gurdwara. We kind of just go along with stuff. I've thought about this even with Kirtan and stuff. Like, why do we have all these mic stands and cameras and lights? Let's figure out a way to simplify it, but do it better. Sure. You know, but nobody's thinking about it, right? No, we yeah. need to spend some energy. Probably, probably because of what you mentioned, you know, people might get sensitive about manipulating the tradition and stuff like that. We talk about sitting at a computer for a couple hours at a time and, or getting an ergonomic chair or changing your posture. Yeah. But when it comes to Gurdwara, that's off yeah. limits. You know, you got to right. sit for six hours and that's the end of and it. And then if you sit against the wall, you get the dirty looks. You're, yeah. You're that guy. You're <laughs> yeah. that guy against the wall. What are you? You're not old. Yeah. yeah so, you're not that old. You make room for the older guys. What are you doing? <laughs> that's true. I'm with you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm usually the one against the wall. <laughs> Even right now, like right now we've been sitting for a while. Mm -hmm. It's instinctual for me to now stand up and take the pressure off my spine. You'll see me doing that periodically. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. I, I've been doing that too. I keep pulling my shoulders back. I right. kind of have to, I have a, like some kind of tendon issue here where my chest ties into my shoulder. Yeah. Um, it rolls my shoulder over. So no now pressure. all my form, like when I'm lifting, it causes tension, like in my shoulder, in my elbow, I get a lot of tendonitis. I have to consciously roll my shoulder back in order to get the right position to avoid that pain. We, we see that a lot. I'm guilty of that too. And the reason is because when you and I go to the gym yeah. and we look in the mirror, we see this side, we see chest, we see traps, we see delts, biceps. So we're working on benching 300 pounds or for you, 600 pounds, yeah, whatever. but man. what we neglect is our upper back. So our pec muscle, which is what you just pointed to is inserting into your humerus bone. It's pulling everything forward. Yeah. And the muscles in the back, those trapezius, rhomboids, levator, they're like, what the heck? We need, right, some, right. we need some balance here. 
So if you see swimmers' bodies, now swimmers look different than bodybuilders, but that's the body. You want big back supporting you and keeping you upright. I see. And a lean front. That's just Interesting. not what we go to the gym for. We go to the gym to do bench press. Yeah, yeah, like you said, we're looking in the mirror and I'm like, hey, can I make this bigger? But that's right. It's easy now because there's so many, there's so much equipment, things that you can do at home, right? They have the rubber band type resistance. Right. So anybody, anybody can take a, a different varying degrees of resistance rubber bands and use them to develop those muscles in the back like that. Yeah, even body weight resistance exercises, going onto yeah. the floor and doing supermans and yeah. snow angels was another thing that we did recently. Okay. You know, I spoke with uh, an obesity specialist at the Cornell recently, and I said between aerobic exercise and weight resistance for people who want to lose weight. Yeah, everyone's focusing on I got to run. Right, right. Got to do aerobics. What's more important? And she said, running is great for your heart. It's great for conditioning. If you're trying to lose weight, it's a complete waste of your time. Right. You must focus on diet, obviously, first and foremost, but resistance training. Building that lean muscle that's increasing your basal metabolic, basal metabolic rate is the best way to lose weight. Right. And bodybuilders have known that for decades, right? right? They, they've known that. They, they figured out how to do, if they're going to do any kind of cardio type, they call it cardio, but it's not. They're doing yeah. high interval, uh, intense, uh, high intensity interval I, training. Yeah, right. Right? So they figured that out a while ago, that the resistance training actually helps them burn more fat. Yeah. I've always looked at bodybuilding literature because even how they know the insulin, the growth factors, yep. when to deliver protein to get into the muscles is very fascinating. Yeah, no, there's a lot, but a lot of it is bro science. There is a lot of that out there, Yeah, but you these guys at the top levels, they're not just like, everybody just thinks that they're just steroid monsters pumping themselves. No, they, they've got everything. They know exactly what they're taking, how much right. of it they're taking and how it right. interacts with the foods they eat, you know, why they're eating white rice with that protein. You know, they, they've got right. all of that stuff figured out. Absolutely. But yeah, I think, um, our community though, our food is an issue. And I know that, um, even at the Gurdwara, um, some of my friends, um, in New York, New Jersey area, um, they told me that they had an initiative where they tried to do healthier snacks at the grill. So instead of the typical pakore and samosa, they did baked pakore okay. and, <laughs> and things like that. Air and fried. they got so much backlash on oh, it. Really? People were so upset yeah. that why are you doing it? They're trying to explain, well, the diabetes is so high in our, in our sure. community and heart disease and all. No, they weren't having it. They were upset. Why did you change our pakore? <laughs> Yeah, it's good. It's going to take some small efforts, though. I think that's especially the next generation of campers and camp counselors. I think yeah. they're going to understand a little bit more than our parents' generation that came here from India. Right, right. I think they're going to understand that food is medicine and we need to make those small changes and adaptations for our health. So let me ask you, just kind of getting back to the stem cell stuff, who would be, um, why would somebody want to come see you or a doctor about? stem cell therapies. Uh, what would be the, um, the driving force for that? So I get contacted and referrals all the time about patients interested in stem cells. And I think the first thing is I have an open conversation with them. We talk about their imaging, we talk about their symptoms. And then a lot of times we decide that stem cells are not the best treatment for them. Right. You know, they've seen it on the, maybe not the news, but on a commercial or some right. advertisement. It's like, I need an IV infusion of stem cells. <laughs> right. The first thing I say is, listen, that's not what we do. That's not a thing. Let's talk about your pathology and seeing where we can help. Right. Uh, but for me specifically, you know, 
I'm in pain management and the tools that I've had for so many years are cortisone. And with all my clinical and research interests, I'm hoping I'm not using cortisone in the next five, 10 years. Yeah. Because I know it's deleterious to people's health. I know it helps pain and patients come in saying, I need the steroid shot. I need it. And I'm still guilty of offering it because I know it has some benefit for inflammatory conditions. Right. But long-term, it's not a great solution where I think regenerative medicine and stem cells is a great intervention. But I tell patients, listen, I'm not going to cure you. I'm going to help support the environment of your joint. But then you have to go back to what you and I just talked about. Eating right, exercising right, losing weight, sleeping, less stress. Right. Because stress, I mean, stress is all cortisol, which is increasing stress in our environment, in our, in our bodies. And unless we know how to manage that, we're not going to get an achievable outcome anyway. Yeah, and the, that cortisol actually helps you, makes you get fatter too. For sure. It, it yeah. increases your body fat and which makes the other things worse, which makes now the therapies you're going to get not as effective. Right, because it's a stress response. Your body is saying, whoa, I don't know what I'm going to eat next. Let me store that for now. Yeah. Instead of using fat to for energy, yeah, cortisol it wreaks havoc on havoc on your system. So we're trying to balance right. that for sure. Yeah. Okay. So you know we've done about an, almost an hour here. <laughs> it's um, it's flying by. I can't believe it's been an hour. We're just chatting yeah, no. casually. It's great. No, you know what? It's fun, and that's the whole thing with this podcast. What I want to do is I want people. I'm trying to talk to a lot of people that I know, but like we haven't talked in a long time, right? So I've been reaching out to people like that. And I'm enjoying reconnecting, right? So, sure. I, and I hope people see that it's one thing to see you as the doctor, the researcher, you know, the expert, but to also see you as just a normal sick man, you know, and hearing how how you talk, you're seeing your personality. I hope that kind of destigmatizes people's ideas about talk, you know, getting their pain treated properly or or dealing with health issues. Um, and so I'm hoping that this podcast will help people kind of open up to that. No, I think it's great. I love that you reached out to me and, you know, you are a role model of mine. You were a mentor of mine. I've, I've known you for 30 years, so I don't want to underplay how much you've had, how much impact you've had on my life as well, even in, <laughs> even in Sikhi and keeping the turban and all that stuff. I mean, you were certainly instrumental in all of that, so I don't want to downplay that. Oh, that's really nice to say, but it wasn't, it wasn't me. You know, the guru has um plan for everybody you know and i don't want to get back to our earlier comments about you know does Vaiguru take care of anything or whatever right. but i think um what we see in each other in this that's why i don't like when people say too much about this we see it in each other like when i'm looking at you i'm seeing the guru's group right we see the guru in each other that's why we get inspired by each other because the guru is inspiring right absolutely so but I really, really appreciate you coming on. It was a great conversation. I'd love to have you back another time. We can get into other things in a little more detail. Or even if you just want to talk about like health and fitness in general. Yeah. Or just reminisce about camps, whatever it is. Absolutely. No, this is I'm okay with all that. This was fun. You know, one of the one of my passion projects on the side of treating patients with pain and spine is health and wellness. Yeah. Uh, so we, you know, we try to do a lot of writing on various topics such as sleep and eating correctly and yeah. different types of fad diets these days. Um so I don't want to selfishly plug myself, but we are starting a podcast as well. Yeah, no, please do it. actually um, let people know where they can reach you. What um, social media handles and um, I'll put a link to the podcast sure. to the description of this video. Yeah. So we started a podcast called The Backstory. 
Yeah. Um, and basically it's a health and wellness podcast and I'm not the expert. I'm the host. There are experts okay. that are coming in and talking about obesity and sleep medicine and nasal health, yeah. and integrative health. So um, that's available on the website at my name, rickysingmd.com. Okay. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's a great project. And I hope that you and I can exchange thoughts in the future again. Yeah, no, absolutely. Hey, uh, real quick before we go, though, have you been keeping up on your Kirtan? Do you still do Kirtan? Uh, when I go to Gurdwara, I do at home. It's tough. You know, I play double on my desk, just <laughs> living in Manhattan with equipment. No excuse. I'm making excuses right now, but yeah. you know, it's, it's where, where, where I was when you knew me as a 12 and 14 year old and now, or it's different, but I, well, always, we're all different. We all, no. we all change. We all evolve, but you know, I think it's, you were good at it. Right. Yeah. So it would be, it would be sad if you gave it up. So I'm glad Again, to hear those that are, you're still doing it here. And those there. are all just blessings from Wagadu anyway, but yes, I, I appreciate that. And I think about it sometimes I need to find some time to go back to that, that phase. Yeah, no, that'd be really good. All right. Dr. Jaspal Ricky Singh. Thank you for coming in and stepping into the net arena. And I look forward to talking to you again. It's been a pleasure. It's good to see your face after so long. And I had a real fun time today. Yeah, me too. All right. Why would you call us? Why would you give that? Thank you.